we're going to dive into the Word. Um, it's quite a short passage, but still great. Um, so if you're in the Church Bible, it's Mark chapter 8, 22 to 26, and it should be on page 956 if you're in the Church Bible. Jesus heals a blind man at Bethsaida. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, don't even go into the village. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. just going to pray for Gareth now. Lord, we just pray for Gareth. Thank you for the time and the effort he's put into this sermon tonight. I just pray that you can speak through him. And he can really be a blessing to us this week. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, uh, Will and Elise, for your uh, double act in leading us this evening. It's been a, a great blessing to have you. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Gareth. I'm part of the clergy team uh, here at St. Nick's. Um, I one of my colleagues is uh, away, and uh, Steve, my boss, is having uh, Chinese right now. Um, but that's all in the name of uh, international church unity, so do pray for him uh, in that. Uh, tonight, uh, there are two things, really, that we want to mark. So next, next week, as has been alluded to, the kind of craziness of carol concert season really kicks off. Um, but tonight we are firstly uh, coming to the end of part one uh, of this series on Mark. So this is the final part uh, of the first half of this series we've been doing on Mark's Gospel. We'll take a couple of months off and then we'll return at the beginning of February. And I think as has been apparent, as we've dipped into uh, a chunk out of each chapter over the last eight or nine weeks, that this is a breathless biography of Jesus, full of matter-of-fact but miraculous moments. And so tonight we're going to look at um, a very short passage. We'll keep the first passage we heard read in mind, but we're going to really focus in on this passage from Mark 8 and just those five verses, uh, 22 to 26, about the healing of the man in Bethsaida. And I hope that in a sense it helps round up uh, what this gospel has been about so far, which is seeing and knowing Jesus more truly and fully in our day-to-day -day lives. But today is also the start of Advent. And Advent is a really uh, significant season in the life of the church. Now, you may well this morning have opened the first window in your Advent calendar. I have an Advent calendar for the first time in years it's a Reese's Pieces one. It is an absolute game changer. But I think when we truly want to think about Advent and its significance in the life of the church and in the life of faith, sometimes we need to step back from our Advent calendars 
And we need to step away from the kind of commercial monster that Christmas can be. Um, Because Advent in the life of the church is far more than just 25 chocolates. 25 chocolates uh, as windows in a desperate rush to Christmas, which is the main event. And then once you've got to Christmas Day, it's like the balloon pops because the celebration is really over on Boxing Day. Now, in the life of the church, Advent has always been a really significant season in its own right. It's a season of longing, of waiting, of anticipation. Uh, And so I want to use this season and what it's about and what its meaning is as a way of framing how we dive into and work our way through this passage this evening. And I'm partly doing that because even as a church, as we get caught up in the chaos of Christmas carol season, it's it's easy for us to get lost and not really to stop uh, and absorb and hear what Advent is and can be for us. So this evening we're going to dive into Mark, but it's also a bit of an appeal. It's a recommendation to live not just in the build-up to Christmas Day, but to live in the anticipation of Advent, partly so that by the time you get to Christmas Day, you can spend 12 days celebrating the truth of Christ's coming rather than thinking it's all over on Boxing Day. And so if you've got a Bible, let's uh, turn together to that passage in Mark chapter 8, and we're going to make our way through uh, verse by verse. And uh, this story is one of several healings in the book of Mark, in Mark's gospel. And what becomes apparent as you look at these stories of healings in in the gospels, and in Mark is no different, is that each healing looks a little different. Now, we happen to have two, um, two passages read where we have healings that take a very similar form, but even they have subtle and significant differences. And actually, if you look over the range of Scripture and in the range of Mark's Gospel, it strikes me how different Jesus' way of healing often is. And, and, and they're different in two ways and for two reasons, I think. Firstly, throughout the stories of Jesus' healings, Jesus uses different methods of healing. So we kicked off, uh, or our second part of our series was Jesus healing the paralyzed man in Mark chapter 2. And he does so by simply declaring healing, by announcing it, by speaking to him, having forgiven his sins. There's a story uh, earlier on in Mark's gospel where Jesus is walking through the street And a woman reaches out and touches the hem of his cloak. And without Jesus necessarily consciously doing anything, his presence powerfully heals her. There are stories of Jesus not just healing but bringing complete new life when he wasn't even there. A centurion comes to him and says, I have a servant who's gravely ill and I know you don't even have to be there. Just say the word and he will be healed. So we have Jesus speaking life into existence. We have Jesus' garment making a a woman well. We have Jesus not even being there and yet still managing to bring new life and new hope and healing. And I think this is important that Jesus heals in these different methods for a couple of reasons. And, And the first is this. 
Because Jesus heals in all these different ways, it means that contrary to our human tendency, we're not given a nice little model for us to follow when it thinks about how we do healing ministry or how we do church. Jesus doesn't give us a by-the-dots formula for us to follow, which may be quite frustrating, but I think it's important. And, and one of the challenges sometimes, I think, when, it pro- when we think about healing or when we think about, uh, when we think about what it means to be church and to follow Jesus and to live out his story more generally, is that we always want to hone in on very specific stories and think, ah, from that one story, I'm going to draw out my entire basis of what I do. And if we were to do that with the different stories of Jesus' healings, though, we'd end up with very odd, quirky, specific ways of doing things. So we might just take from one story that, oh, well, bringing about healing in the world and being church is simply about announcing Jesus. It's just about talking. Uh, it, may not, it may even be about talking to people that we're not even in the room with. As long as we announce what God is saying, it's all fine. Or, or it may be that we think, well, actually, the real important thing is that we are present. We are present. And so we just need to walk through the streets as God's holy people. And perhaps, perhaps if people just get a glimpse of us or if they just touch the hem of our robes, our garments, or what we're wearing, they're just going to be so captivated or they're just going to be so touched that they are going to be healed. Or maybe, maybe we, we take this story from Mark 8 and we think what we really need to do is get very up close and personal with people. We need to get so up close and personal with people that we basically spit in their face. And that, apparently, is how we bring about healing and restoration and how we announce the good news of Jesus. Now, you'll be glad to know that particularly that last one is not one that I'm advocating. But I think it is significant that Jesus heals in so many different ways with so many different methods. And in doing so, he doesn't give us a formula to follow Bringing about God's healing or even being church is not something that we can just do a by-the-dots journey with. This might be frustrating, but I think it's helpful for us to know. But secondly, healing stories are different because each one seems to have a distinct and different message to bring. The sense in which every single healing points to who Jesus is. They point to him as one who has authority over sickness and over brokenness. All of them declare in different ways that this is the Son of God. And yet, and yet, the different details, the different dynamics, the different ways and means that Jesus goes about bringing healing each reveal particular important things about what it means to say that he is the son of God and what it means for him to bring God's truth and healing and restoration in the world. And I feel like this particular story of healing has a really helpful and beautiful uh, message or set of messages uh, that we need to hear as a church as we come to the end of part one of our series on Mark, and as we enter into this season of Advent. And so as we go through this text, I want to draw out hopefully three reflections um, of what this message is, and of what this story of Jesus healing the blind man in Bethsaida has to say about the nature of Jesus, his kingdom, and the gospel message that we've been talking about over the last eight, nine weeks, and that we're going to be talking about in the carol services, is all about. 
And the first reflection may seem a little strange, but hopefully it will make sense in a few moments. The first thing I want to say tonight, based on this story, is that the gospel is tactile. The gospel is tactile. The gospel is not just about words, but it is also very much about touch as well. There is something almost affectionate about the word of God and how it ministers to you and me. And this is true in in many ways which come through in this story. Let me read verses 22 and 23 to you. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? In this passage, there are five tactile interactions between Jesus and this man. And in those two verses I just read out, there are four. They bring, or there are four references to tactile interactions. In in verse 22, they bring the man to Jesus for him to touch him. And then Jesus takes him by the hand. Having taken him by the hand, he spits and then he puts his hands on the man's eyes. And I've been wrestling all week with why is it that there is so much tactile interaction in this story? It really struck me as significant. And of course, you could simply read this as an example of Jesus being somebody that ministers sensitively to the people. He finds himself in the presence of a man who couldn't see him. And so Jesus is sensitively meeting him where he's at. He's meeting him in his place of need by talking to him and by touching him, by taking him by the hand and leading him. And I think that is true. And the story is not less than an example of Jesus ministering sensitively and tactfully with this man. But I think if we dig a little deeper... There is more to it than that. There is a bigger picture of what it might mean to see Jesus and his gospel and his ministry as being tactile. If we step back and and survey the gospel of Mark more broadly, there are nine times in which the word touch is used. The word touch used in this passage in verse 22 is hapto. And if you're into tech, haptic technology is like virtual tech, which is all about feeling as well as, uh, as, well as seeing in terms of virtual reality. It's this word hapto. And the word hapto um, doesn't just mean touch, although that's how we translate it. It can also mean to be bound to. Uh, It can mean to join with, or it can even mean to kindle a fire. To kindle a fire, the word hapto. And this this word appears nine times throughout the the course of Mark's gospel uh, in relation to six separate incidents or moments uh, in Jesus' ministry, five of which are healings including what we uh, referred to earlier when the woman reaches out to touch Jesus and he asks, who is it who touched me because I felt power go out of me? Or even in the very first healing which happens in Mark's gospel in chapter one, where the man with leprosy comes to Jesus and Jesus has compassion on him, reaches out, touches him, and he is healed. And it seems to me that there's a couple of things which are significant about 
this ministry Jesus has of being tactile with people as he heals them. The first is, very simply, that it seems to me that the message and method of Jesus' ministry is multisensory. And this challenges me because I know everyone says that the whole um, learning styles thing is, is out and teachers will tell me that that was, that was very popular, uh, but it's no longer a thing. Sarah, is that right? It's, it's no longer a thing. Um, but it does strike me as significant that the way in which Jesus shares the good news that he announced at the beginning in Mark 1 and the way that he reveals who he is to people is multisensory. And that's a challenge to me because I'm a, you know, this may not surprise you, I'm a words guy. The way that I interact is, is in speaking and also in listening. I, I love to learn by hearing. I, I also love to engage in worship by singing. Um, but, but it strikes me that the way in which Jesus interacts is, is a little bit more multisensory than that. It's, yes, words are important. Jesus announces the kingdom. He talks when he tells stories about those who have ears to hear listen. But he also seems to meet people where they are in multi-sensory ways. And maybe this is something for us to bear in mind when it comes to our worship. Because in a church like St. Nick's, a lot of our worship is about what we hear and what we say. And actually, sometimes in other church traditions, um, and I'm, I'm struck by this again as we're thinking in terms of the season of Advent, if you were to walk into a Greek Orthodox church, your worship experience would be truly multisensory because there would be incense to engage with your sense of smell. There would be icons uh, to help you see. And it seems like Jesus is so determined to meet people where they are that his message is multisensory. But, but I think even more um, importantly, this speaks to the fact that Jesus is committed to connection. Jesus has a real commitment to connection. And this is Jesus meeting this man where he's at and connecting with him on a really profound and powerful level. I'll go back to in a sec. I read a, a Guardian article in uh, the run-up to th this talk which talks about how in our culture we have a crisis of connection which is actually wrapped up in the fact that we have become increasingly averse to tactile interaction with one another. Now, it, uh, my love language is affection, so this really does uh, feel like a crisis to me. You might, you might not uh, have a preference towards tactile uh, interactions or affection, but uh, there, is, there are reports coming out um, by kind of well-known uh, psychologists suggesting that there is a genuine crisis of connection in our culture which is based on the fact that we have fewer and fewer tactile interactions with each other. And I think this is partly uh, due to the fact that we are oftentimes understandably hypersensitive to not crossing boundaries unhelpfully or inappropriately. Um, but sometimes we become so sensitive that it actually means that we miss out on any kind of tactile interaction with one another. But there's also something about being so distracted and that so much of the way which we pursue connection in our culture is virtual or on social media, that actual face-to-face -face and even tactile interaction with people is actually lost. And it seems to me quite beautiful that Jesus wants to meet people and interact with them in a tactile way. 
I spent uh, this weekend visiting uh, some friends of mine um, in Hull and in Scarborough. Um, and as part of this uh, journey, which was, which was wonderful um, in most ways, it meant that I had to spend quite a bit of time on trains. Um, and and it, as I was on trains, I had one leg of a train journey which was incredibly hemmed in. We were very crowded and cramped, um, partly because there were some Derby fans that were on their way to Long Eaton. Um, but there was also a journey in which I had uh, a seat to myself. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I, I think my Britishness manifests itself most notably and most, most prominently in how I feel about sitting on my own in public transport. Because when I sit on a train and I have an empty seat next to me, I spend my time doing two completely contradictory things, and I wonder if any of you can relate to this. I spend half my time thinking, I desperately don't want anybody to sit next to me. I'm really enjoying having these two seats to myself. Please, please nobody choose this as your seat. And you know what's coming next. But then when people don't, and when people choose to sit next to other people, I spend the rest of my time thinking, what's wrong with me? Is it... I don't think I'm man-spreading. Um, I, I don't think I smell. I, it's a, a stain on my outfit. What does, what does this say about me, that these people who I desperately don't want to sit next to me desperately don't want to sit next to me? And I have this existential British crisis. But, but I think that what is rooted in that is both sides of this. Partly our kind of anxiety and our desire to hold ourselves off and maybe forego connection, but at the same time there's something in us that so longs for connection that the idea that we might be rejected, even in a very simple way like somebody choosing not to sit next to us on a train, can bring up a, a degree of pain and anxiety in us. And I think, you know, British jokes aside, I think there is something a bit deeper going on in me when I find myself going through that crisis on public transport. And this is not going to sound like the most profound way of talking about Jesus' ministry, but as I was thinking about this with tonight's talk in mind, it just struck me that Jesus' ministry is all about meeting us where we are and connecting with us in our place and point of need. We've already thought about, when Laura spoke to us a few weeks ago, about Jesus not being worried and about Jesus being willing to step into the busyness and the crowd, even as the people hemmed him in. But in our story this evening, and in this healing interaction, we see that Jesus is also not worried to meet people on an individual basis, to connect with them, to take them by the hand, to lead them away from the hustle and bustle, to touch them, to put his hand on their eyes, even the bit of them that might have seen uncleaned or uncouth. And so in a very simple way, what does the story of Jesus say to us? But that Jesus is the one who goes and sits next to you on the train. God was not unwilling to do that. Jesus is the one that goes to the end of the room and talks to the person on their own. Jesus is the one who meets us and ministers to us and blesses us when we feel most lonely or afraid 
or vulnerable. Jesus wants to reach out and interact with you in a tactile way. And I think this is part of an even bigger picture yet than simply Jesus' desire to connect. Because as I said, tonight marks the beginning of Advent. And Advent is about three things. Uh, We often associate it with one, but it's about three things. The next two I'll talk about in a moment. But the first aspect of Advent is that it is a time and a season in which we think and reflect about the coming of Jesus in the incarnation, the coming of Jesus at Christmas. God becoming human, God becoming a baby at Christmas. God putting on skin and moving into the neighborhood. And in a sense, there is something about that which is inherently tactile. God is willing to take on this weird thing that we call a body. He's willing to step into bodily form and be somebody that can not only touch, but be touched. I love the description of God as human in, um, in John's letter to the early church, the Apostle John's letter to the early church in 1 John verses 1 to 2. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. That which we have seen with our eyes, that which we have heard, and that which we have looked at and our hands have touched. Even when we're trying to be... um, prophetic and Christian about Christmas, sometimes all we can say is things like, don't forget the reason for the season. But the reality is, the unbelievable message at the heart of Christmas is this, is that the God who created all things, who is transcendent and goes beyond time and space and all human understanding, stepped into creation. And he became tangible. He became touchable. That is a mind-blowing concept and message. And that's why the gospel is tactile. Now, you may hear that and you go, okay, that's all very well of you to say, Gareth, because that was true clearly for the early church. That was true for the apostles. That was true for those people who for a 35-year window or a 33-year window were there when God was in Jesus on earth. What about now? I can't see Jesus in the flesh right now. I can't reach out and touch his body now. What does that really mean for me? Well, apart from the fact that Jesus promises to send his spirit, and maybe for some of us this evening, that's what we need to pray into, is for Jesus' spirit to come and move and for us to feel his presence. But for those times and seasons where Jesus It doesn't feel near. We don't feel like we can see him. His spirit doesn't seem to be making himself known to us. What do we do? Well, as a a thought, I just want to say that the second aspect of Advent, after the coming of God in Jesus at Christmas, is actually historically been around thinking about the coming of Jesus 
in both the word of God, but also in the bread and the wine of communion. And we're not going to take communion this evening, but it, it just struck me as, as one of the things that's worth bearing in mind, and one of the reasons why I think communion is both an important and a really powerful sign of who Jesus is and what he's about, is that it isn't just something we can hear, but it is something that we can see and something that we can touch and something that we can even taste. And so I want to commend to you that communion is not just this thing that we do because we have to, but it is a way of intimately meeting with Jesus in a way that you can in perhaps no other way. So Advent is about the coming of Jesus at Christmas, but it's also about the coming of Jesus in the bread and the wine of communion. So the gospel is tactile, but what this story also suggests is that the gospel can take time to take root in our lives. Verse 24, Jesus has led this man by the hand. He's put his hands on his eyes. He's prayed for him. He's, he's, he's prayed for healing. But then in verse 24, the man looks up, and when Jesus has asked him, do you see anything, he says, well, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. This is the only story of healing in all of the Gospels where the healing doesn't happen in an immediate and dramatic way. The man who probably hadn't been born blind but had clearly gone blind is asked by Jesus, what do you see? And he, and he thinks he can see people, but it, apparently they look like trees walking. And it's quite a, a, a stressful place to be. I don't know about you, but I, I found this picture, but I actually find it quite stressful. And I think it captures something of the difficulty and the uncertainty of where this man was at. And the question people often ask is, why is this story in the Gospels? If the reason why Mark was offering this breathless biography of Jesus was to really help us know that this was Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, why include a story which seems to suggest almost a degree of failure on Jesus' part? Now, you could look at it and say, as some people do, well, hey, this is a comforting story because what it says to us is, hey, even Jesus needs to pray twice sometimes. Even Jesus needs to be persistent in his ministry and as he goes about seeking healing. And you can do that, and you can say that, but I think that this story has an altogether more meaningful message than that. Because I think we see something and we learn something quite important about healing, but also about discipleship in general from this. So I want to talk quickly about healing and then see how this speaks into our discipleship more generally. Um, there's a theologian called Andrew Wilson who leads uh, is part of a church leadership team down in London, and he talks about um, developing what, what he calls a healthy theology of healing, because when it comes to healing, which can be quite a triggering topic, to be honest, in the life of the church, well, there are two temptations that we face. One is we're so convinced that through Jesus, healing can and should happen, that we always pursue it, and when it doesn't happen, because it doesn't match with our worldview that it should always happen, we can often say and do things which are at best insensitive and at worst deeply damaging to the people that we're praying for. The exact opposite 
temptation is to simply go, well, healing doesn't always happen, therefore it's not worth the risk, and it's not something I want to have anything to do with. But Andrew Wilson talks about having a healthy theology of healing. And at the heart of this healthy theology of healing is realizing that there isn't just one type of healing in which God is involved. There are, he says, four types of healing that we can think about. The first is what he calls the natural form of healing. This is an infection in your body and white blood cells racing to treat the virus. This is a cut on your head or on your nose, healing, and naturally your blood clotting to keep you safe. Type one healing is natural. Type two healing is the miraculous. It's Jesus spitting in a man's eyes and restoring his sight. It's somebody being prayed for at the end of a service and their back being healed, their back being restored. Type three is what he calls the medicinal type of healing. This is you're in, a, you're in an accident and you're taken to have surgery or you go to your doctor to receive medication to help those white blood cells along in fighting that infection. The fourth type of healing is what he calls the eternal. And this is a type of healing which happens not in the now, but in the not yet. It's healing that we hope for in the fact that there will be a day when Jesus will return, when all things will be made new, when our tears will be wiped away, and when our afflictions will be healed. And the reason why these four types of healing are important is that it means that, actually, when we find ourselves asking the question, why does Jesus heal sometimes but not always? Well, in the grand scheme of things and in the big picture of the story of Scripture, we can actually say, well, actually, Jesus always does heal, just not always yet. Healing is something which is promised to all of us ultimately. It doesn't always happen yet. And this reframes how we think about what is going on when healing happens, either in Scripture or even in our day-to-day. Because, I don't know, if you're like me, often you think of healing or you think of any notion of a miracle that happens in Scripture or in the church today as God basically interrupting the way things should be in order to show off. Do you you know what I mean? We think that in our world, things are as they should be. There are natural laws which order the universe in the way that they're meant to be, but every so often, because God wants to show off, he interrupts, he changes how things are meant to be in order to do things his way. But actually, in the big story of Scripture, that's not what's going on. We live in a world which is broken and isn't how it is meant to be. The world we currently live in is not the world as it is truly meant to be. But the promise is that through Jesus, one day, all things will be made new. God's kingdom is now, but it will be fully realized when Jesus comes again in glory. So what is going on when Jesus heals a man born blind or when Jesus heals this blind man? He's giving a glimpse of new creation. He's giving a glimpse of the world as it should be. Currently, we live in the world, and it isn't as it should be, but every so often, the kingdom of God breaks in, and we see the world as it's truly meant to be. And I find that helpful in knowing why Jesus sometimes does heal, but also why he doesn't. 
Because the reality is, is that we live in that tension. We live in the now and the not yet. The third aspect of Advent, and arguably the most important, is not the coming of Jesus in communion. It's not the coming of Jesus in Christmas. But actually, throughout the history of the church, the most important aspect of Advent as a season has been that it is a time when we anticipate Jesus' second coming. That may seem strange. It's not really something that we necessarily talk about or connect with that often. But actually, in the history of the church, anticipation of the second coming has and is at the heart of Advent. And I think this is important because it invites us to live with the future in mind. Uh, In her book on Advent, Fleming Rutledge says that actually Advent is a season in which we as a church constantly live in because we're constantly in that tension of the now, but looking ahead to that day when Jesus will come again. And that tension, I think, is captured in verse 24 of this passage. Because there are those times in our lives where it's like we have received some healing, but it hasn't quite come to fruition. Or maybe we're not simply talking about healing, but we're talking about our walk with Jesus and our understanding of who he is and what he's about. And it might be that you are here tonight and you haven't fully said yes to whether or not you're a Christian. You haven't fully said, yes, I think that Mark's right, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And it's almost as if you identify with the man in this passage. It's like you've started coming to church, you've been reading a bit of the Bible, you may have been doing Alpha, you may have been exploring faith, you may be meeting up with friends who follow Jesus, and you have had an encounter of some kind. Things are starting to make sense, but you don't see Jesus fully yet. You're looking around, and you're seeing the world in a new way, but it's as if people are like trees walking around. It's blurry, it's not quite obvious yet. And you're not quite ready to say, yes, I see Jesus for who he is. Well, if that is you this evening, I want to invite you to let Jesus meet you, lead you by the hand, and walk more fully into healing and revelation and realization of who he is. Possibly one of the highlights of my time at St. Nick's happened this summer when I got to do Alpha with um, a fairly, um, and one of, one of the people that did Alpha with me was here, and would probably agree, it was, it was on paper a fairly random collection of people, uh, but we met every week, just sort of six of us, to watch the Alpha videos and to have good questions and conversations about Jesus. And um, at the end of that uh, time together, uh, there was a couple, Monica and Naveed, who were part of our morning congregation, who decided that yes, They felt like they were ready to say yes to Jesus and follow him. But what was really notable to me when I was talking to them and when we were talking about the possibility of baptism in particular was that they hadn't come to that place and they hadn't made that decision because everything was obvious and clear now. They were people that had come from a Muslim background that were deconstructing and reconstructing a completely different worldview. And they still had so many questions. They still had so many things they didn't quite get, they weren't sure about. 
But what they knew was that Jesus had met them, had touched them, and was leading them by the hand. And one of the best quotes uh, I've ever heard came from Naveed in that baptism prep session when I was asking him why at this point, despite his questions, he wanted to get baptized. And he said, the reason is, is that I'd rather be a Christian with questions who is still learning than to continue to live my life as a researcher. I'd rather be a Christian with questions who is still learning than keep living my life as a researcher. For those of us that maybe feel like we're on the fringes of following Jesus, it is so easy to live life as a researcher and to assume that the only way that you could ever call yourself a Christian is to be in that place where you fully see everything and you get it all together. But the promise of Advent and the promise of this passage is that you don't have to do that, that things may still seem fuzzy, but you don't have to live life as a researcher. You can be a Christian with questions. And you can do that because finally the promise of the gospel is that it will ultimately transform lives. We will see clearly eventually. And this is true, not just for those of you that feel like you're on the fringes, but I think it's true for those of us that maybe feel frustrated about where we are at the moment. It might be that you feel like there was a time when you had been healed, where you did see Jesus. You maybe had a dramatic or immediate moment where everything seemed to make sense. And yet, after a season of struggle, or after just years where more and more questions have cropped up, you almost feel like maybe you've regressed, maybe you've gone back, maybe things have got a lot more fuzzy than they used to. But the promise of this passage is that healing and restoration do happen, that Jesus does transform lives, and that even if it doesn't happen immediately, it will come to pass, because the story doesn't end with the man seeing fuzzy. It says in verse 25, once more Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And we can have trust and we can live our lives of discipleship based partly on what Jesus has already done in meeting us in Christmas. Again, uh, Laura in her talk a few weeks ago talked about this idea that even if we never saw another miracle, even if we never had another prayer answered, the most profound and important thing Jesus has done for us has already happened in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But the promise of Advent is that we can also live in the anticipation and in the promise and in the hope of what Jesus will do when he comes again to restore all things and to make things new. And what I love about the New Testament is that it is filled with promises of what Jesus will do. Philippians 1 verse 6, he who began a good work in you will carry it through to completion. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 12 says that though we might now see as through a glass dimly, one day we will see things fully. 2 Corinthians 13, 17 to 18 talks about how we are being transformed from glory into glory so that we might not only see Jesus more fully, but that we might fully uh, represent and reflect him in the world. And so if we're going to fully... um, 
live out this call. And if we're going to fully receive the promises of Jesus, we look back to what Jesus has already done, but we also look forward to what Jesus will accomplish. And this helps us to live better in the now. And I'm just going to finish um, with a story about Arsenal, okay? Um, because I need to draw hope in the past when it, comes, um, when it comes to Arsenal at the moment. But I want to tell this story, which I think just gives a little glimpse of maybe how living with hope for the future and knowing how the story ends can transform how we see things in the present. When I was, uh, when I was younger, um, if I was either ill and off school or particularly stressed uh, with work whilst at university, I had a particular coping mechanism, which was watching a video called Boring, Boring Arsenal, which was the 97-98 season retrospective. Now, if you don't know, um, if you're not really up on your kind of football history or particular Arsenal's 97-98 season, what happened in the 97-98 season was despite at one point being as low as sixth in the league, it all ended with Arsenal winning both the Premier League and FA Cup double. And the reason I loved watching this when I was either sick or stressed was because it gave a new light to how I saw the parts of the season that didn't seem to make sense because, crucially, I knew how the season ended. I knew how the story ended. And that helped me to look at what was going on in a different light. And as crude an analogy as that may seem, as, as Christians, we live in the struggle knowing how the story ends. It might be that right now things are blurry, but the promise of Advent and the promise of Scripture is that Jesus will bring full healing and restoration. That is part of his plan. And the invitation this evening is to let Jesus take you by the hand to interact in a tactile way and to bring you nearer into his presence so that you might see him and see the world more clearly and profoundly in the light of who he is and what he has done.